0: you know, if you can't do the napkin math, it's probably also too early to go and actually implement the system. Um, like I call this uh, programming through the wall when you just like keep keep writing code and it's like, oh, I'm almost there. And then you just write code a little bit harder, right? When in a lot of cases, you just want to step back and, and think about the system and learn a little bit more about it. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I, I don't mean to say here that like all tech problems can be solved by just sitting and um, with, with like, you know, a, a piece of paper and a pen and doing all of this, right? In a lot of cases, you just need more information from actually like writing some code right? and and you can often get stuck in a rod of just analysis paralysis but I think that napkin math plays a bigger role than than and could play a bigger role than it does now
1: for, for a lot of projects bandwidth for changelog is provided by Fastly learn more at fastly.com we move fast and fix things here at changelog because of Rollbar check them out at rollbar.com and we're hosted on Linode cloud servers head to linode.com slash changelog what up friends you might not be aware but we've been partnering with linode since 2016 that's a long time ago way back when we first launched our open source platform that you now see at changelaw.com, linode was there to help us and we are so grateful fast forward several years now and linode is still in our corner behind the scenes helping us to ensure we're running on the very best cloud infrastructure out there we trust linode they keep it fast and they keep it simple Check them out at lino.com slash changelog. Welcome back, everyone. This is the changelog, a podcast featuring the hackers, the leaders, and the innovators in the world of software. I'm Adam Stachowiak, Editor-in-Chief here at Changelog. On today's show, we're talking with Simon Eskelson, Principal Engineer at Shopify, about how he uses a concept called napkin math, where he used first principle thinking to estimate systems without writing any code.
2: So we have Simon here, Principal Engineer at Shopify. Simon, welcome to the Changelog. Thank you so much. We're happy to have you. You're doing some interesting stuff in the world of learning and advancing as a developer. You have some really cool napkin math stuff to tell us about, but a lot of this has come out of your experience working at Shopify through crazy amounts of growth. Why don't you tell us your Shopify journey? Yeah, sure.
0: So I joined uh, Shopify in about 2013 and back then we were still up in ears to a hundred or maybe a thousand requests per second. And now we're flying somewhere around 100,000 or or more requests per second. And I've been really, really fortunate to be part of that journey on the infrastructure side and just seeing us through every level of that, migrating from our own on-prem to the cloud, moving all of our shops between shards, sharding in the first place, running out of multiple regions, architecting for multiple continents, running shops out of multiple regions, and a lot of the kind of foundational architecture that underpins the Shopify that we run today. And yeah, out of that, I have spent a lot of time having to, to learn about all of these different things. I, I don't come from an academic background. I had some catching up to do, which meant, you know, trying to read the TCP book the first time you, right. you encounter these kinds of problems and catching up as much as possible. And I think that
2: that's a, that's a pretty healthy mindset to maintain for as long as possible. Yeah. Well, you may have overcompensated because now you're out there teaching other people these things, which is a, a cool shift. Shopify is such a success story. It's pretty amazing. And I think, Adam, you and I were talking about the other day. I said maybe the most valuable company in Canada at this point or one of the top ones by market cap. And maybe Rails, Ruby on Rails monolith's biggest success story in pure capitalistic terms. Just an amazing, amazing growth, amazing company. One that uh, we've been watching for many years. And it's probably been cool to be there on the inside and uh, putting out the fires as it grows. Well, One thing that you were a part of, which we aren't going to talk about too much today, but we're going to talk about a lot in an upcoming episode, was a recent rewrite or reimplementation implementation of the storefront, uh, no longer a monolith. You want to just give us like a 30 seconds on that so we can tease it up for a bigger show later? Absolutely.
0: So we built a team last year to completely redesign how we do the storefront that is serving of the stores that you see when you browse Shopify. We've learned a lot scaling that over the past 15 years or so. And fundamentally, it just has some different requirements for how it needs to be run, running across multiple data centers, how it does caching and all of these different things. And Maxim will talk much more about all of these details and why we didn't Mm dare. It's still Ruby, but it's now extracted out of the main monolith that still powers the APIs and and all the business logic.
1: That had to be it. You seem like a learn-by-doing kind of person. That's very much learn-by-doing. It's like you got to do something for many years. And technologies progress over time, but then developers change the way they come into the... Uh, into the market being you know less experienced or more experienced and now being at a position where you've got to do what you're doing now with like learning by doing that's you seem very much like that where you've been at shopify a very very long time and it's part of how you think it seems versus like what i understand is you didn't go to college and you went to shopify and you've very much progressed there so as jared said you're leading in many ways and so rather than having that academic background you kind of have this background of Being in the trenches, so to speak, you know, (laughs) having to read the book to get through it rather than having taken a course to get your CS degree, for example.
0: Yeah. And I think what was really helpful for me was that when I was in high school, I got exposed to this world of competitive programming where every nation essentially has a national team and because denmark where i grew up is a very small country it's not super difficult to make it to the national team compared to somewhere like the united states but that really got me exposed to another level of engineering because before that I had mostly been exposed to, you know, JavaScript and Ruby on Rails and PHP, but seeing suddenly through these algorithms and how something like Google might work by understanding a bit more of the computer science was a fascinating journey. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, yeah, joining Shopify and getting to work on the systems that I'd seen and read about through high school was, was just a dream come true
1: competitive programming. Journey. Have you heard of that before? Is this a first? I've
2: heard of it. I've never participated. I'd be afraid to do so. Tell us about it.
0: Yeah, sure. So essentially what it is is that it's a bit like an exam room, right? So you sit down five hours, you have a computer and you have an editor and you have a C++ compiler, and that's pretty much it. On your table, you will find usually about three problems. And the problems might be they range a lot in what they might be. So a problem, for example, that that I encountered at one point was that you were told that on your machine, there are these five directories. One directory has images that are of impressionist paintings. This one has images that are cubism and so on, so you had all these directories. And then you had to write your own program that with this little training data set would be able to take an image that it had never seen before and classified into one of these five categories. Is it, this is an impressionist painting, this is a cubist painting and so on. So that might be a task, which is a very abstract one. And the way that you might solve that is that you might look at what is the average color difference between the pixels? Because you can see that that is something that changes a lot based on the different kinds of uh, of paintings. right? If you have something like cubism, where you have these like big areas that are yellow and green and so on, the average color difference is a lot smaller than something more impressionistic. right? So that's a more of a free problem, mm-hmm. um, kind of free form ad hoc problem. But they might also be a lot more algorithmic in nature. So one, for example, that I remember is that if you imagine kind of a a grid, right, of intersections, imagine kind of a Manhattan sort of situation where you have almost a perfect grid and you then know that at each intersection, there's a coffee shop and each coffee shop has a Wi-Fi signal that has a certain radius And it also has a certain bandwidth. And then it says, assuming that you can connect to multiple Wi-Fis at the same time and download on all of them, what is the best intersection for you to be in to get maximum bandwidth? Mm. So that's a more algorithmic problem. So then what you will do is you write a solution to these. You upload your C++ program to what's called a judge, which is an internal, the only thing you have access to, something running on the internal network. And then you get back a score somewhere between one and a hundred points. You usually get a hundred points if you've solved it the problem to perfection, but also very fast. So often you can solve these problems with a really simple, but very slow algorithm. And then you can get some points, let's say 30 points. But then if you come up with a much faster algorithm, you might be able to get up to a hundred points. Um, and so you just sit there for five grueling hours and try to work through these problems and trying to balance, you know, should I spend more time on this problem? Do I have it? Do I not have it? And it's definitely some of the tougher hours in my life, than mm. sitting in these exam rooms. But also, mm. great fun.
1: <laughs> this reminds me of like Survivor or Naked and Afraid <laughs> for coders. It's like, hope you weren't naked. You got the essentials. You're in the wilderness. You know, right, cults, right. The wilderness. Get out. Yeah, exactly. You know? <laughs> like an escape
2: room. It's cool. So compare the pressure, the stress, the sweat dripping down your brow of competitive programming versus. Like a, a typical Black Thursday at Shopify, where you're at peak, you know, requests per second, and maybe a server goes down or something inevitably goes wrong. Is that like equal amounts of stress, or is that way more stress because it's other people's money? How do those compare out? Well, it's it's very different, right? Because on on Black Friday, did I say Black Thursday? except like thursday yeah yeah it's all it's all good um
0: because the thursday is when you make the final changes right and we have kind of a very elaborate plan on what risk you can take several weeks in you know we're not going to upgrade the MySQL version the week of black friday in fact we're probably not even going to do that in november because of the things that can
1: surface batten down the hatches and hold on for yeah yeah pretty much keep things the same don't change things much
0: but it's also a really good internal deadline, right? Um, mm-hmm. In October to make sure that things get in because suddenly everything multiplies, right? Everything multiplies. And it's really the final exam. I think it's more the kind of exam where you've built a lot and now it's a bit out of your hands on Black Friday. You can respond to things, but there's no more building allowed, right? So it's a very different kind of pressure where on Black Friday you have to sit there and monitor and make sure everything is fine. We sit in this long room, well, we used to before, uh, before we, all, mm-hmm. we all went remote, but we would all sit in this room and there's monitors all the way around showing our dashboards with how all the systems are performing and we just sit there all day and explicitly do not try to do anything hard because if something does come up, we all need to have maximum energy. We have an LTE router there in case something goes wrong and we, we sit there and monitor and we have teams doing that around the time. And sometimes, you know, small things will happen and we'll see a little pimple in one of the graphs and all like look in and oh make no. sure everything is okay. Yeah. Um, but it's a different mm-hmm. kind of pressure because in the competitive contest, right, you sit there and all of your training has come up to that point and you cannot learn any more algorithms, no more data structures. You have to perform in that very moment. And Black Friday is a little bit the same, but just a different- you have to sit back a little bit and just trust that you've done the work required mm-hmm. up to then. Yeah.
1: How will all this change then with being remote? What are your anticipations for November coming up and the way the world is now in terms of being distributed and not in the same room?
0: Well, the thing is that COVID was a, an unexpected Black Friday already, right? A lot of people started shopping online very, very rapidly. So the traffic already did go up a lot. Mm-hmm. So I think we've been prepared because of that. And what Black Friday is going to look like this year who knows, right? Maybe it's gonna look a lot smaller than previous years because the steady state has gone up so much. Maybe it's gonna be a lot bigger for opposite reasons. It's, it's just very, very hard to predict, but we're of course preparing for the worst or the best depending <laughs> on who,
2: who you ask. <laughs> right. So undoubtedly, you've come up with a lot of different engineered approaches, tr- tips and tricks, and weird solutions. Share uh, maybe one or two of your exploits—not exploits like zero days, but like the things you've done at Shopify over the years. You have mentioned pre-show you doing some stuff with MySQL. Just when you when you have systems at scale, you do things that you have to do things that other engineers don't have to think about because you hit up against the edges of certain technologies. And surely you've done that over the years.
0: Yeah, I think maybe two that come to mind through history here are. One would be when we, probably the the biggest project or the biggest project that I did the earliest was our our potting project. So essentially we'd done sharding. So essentially taking our database and, and splitting it into multiple. And that was done around the same time I joined and not by me, but by other teams. But we wanted to extend that even further so that we could have essentially these groups of shops that live together and are isolated together. And those shops should be able to run in multiple data centers, because before that we would have one data center, all of the shops would be active in that data center. If something went horribly wrong, we would fail all of them over to the other data center. But we wanted to isolate these shops in a way where we could run them out of multiple data centers um, at the same time. That was a lot of engineering effort to make sure that there's nothing relying on the fact that everything is in one data center at a time. So that was one of the biggest projects that I did a few years ago with a really, really good team. This year, one of the things that I'm most excited about that we worked on was that a lot of my focus has been around capacity planning and resiliency. So essentially finding out that when a system becomes slow, how do you make sure that it doesn't jam up the entire system. It's a lot worse when a database is slow than if it's down because it can clog up the systems and cause queues in all these different places and cause much more cascading failures. And one of the things that we've had great success with here is this technique called load shedding. The idea behind load shedding is essentially that when a system is overloaded or close to be overloaded, you wanna start prioritizing what type of traffic that you okay and that you send through to the system. So if we have a store that is having a lot of malicious traffic or some kind of sophisticated DDoS, we want to make sure that we start to drop that traffic before we start to drop the traffic traffic at other merchants to protect the platform. So we've done a lot of work in that, and we've done a lot of work at that at the edge so that the load balancer can prioritize traffic to make sure that our merchants have as much uptime as possible. But we wanted to go even further and start providing that at the database level one of the things that to me is very disappointing about the database realm today is that a lot of companies are SaaS companies right they're multi-tenants companies mm-hmm. and they've run all these tenancies on one or a few databases but one of these these tenants might have a disproportionate impact on that database they might have an api client that is doing a lot more requests than anyone else or they might have a Um, A customer that has a million orders because of some peculiarity in the way that they work. Mm -hmm. So you have all of this cardinality and all of this uniqueness to the merchants or your customer. And that's not just a Shopify problem. That's a SaaS problem. Because what you get with SaaS is that you have, you get these cost efficiencies of running on the same infrastructure. But I don't think the infrastructure has really caught up to Mm. that. So in a database today, you know, it's not, you don't create a schema for every database. MySQL would scream at you if you try to do that when you have enough tenants, because it's just not made for that. So it doesn't really give you any primitives to, to be able to do that. And by default, the way you design your database is really not set up for multi-tenancy at all. So to go back maybe to this example of a single tenant overwhelming the system. MySQL or Postgres or any, there's no database that has a good mechanism for prioritizing traffic between these merchants. Mm. So what we have been looking at was that we found out that in the MySQL protocol, you can send an arbitrary string back with the query. So we thought, what if along with the query results, you know, this could be um, a bunch of customers, a bunch of orders, whatever it might be. What if we also sent back to the application, how many resources that query took? how many nanoseconds on the CPU? How much IO time? How much memory was loaded into the page cache in MySQL? How expensive was this query? The kinds of things that you would see in a slow query log. Mm -hmm. And so you might think, why is that useful? Like you're gonna look at that information. Well, imagine an API throttle that is not some arbitrary number taken out of a hat of you can do hundred requests per second, but rather the API throttle was actually based on how the database is doing and how heavy the queries that your APIs calls are causing actually are, right? Doing API throttling with something like GraphQL on an external API is incredibly difficult to do correctly. And you're almost always going to either underestimate the query complexity or overestimate it. But if we build systems that have multi-tenancy and databases that have multi-tenancy built in to that caliber where they can feed it back to the API throttling, Mm. that helps a lot but you can then also feed it to your load-shedding mechanism. So you can see, oh, this tenant is being really bad at the database, even though they're only doing very, very few queries. Um, so I think that's a, that's a really, really important thing for more databases to adapt, and we've been working on a patch to MySQL to, to expose that's this. That's
2: interesting. Do you have any observability problems, or was it Heisenberg's principle, where by the actual observing of the slow queries, if the response of like, here is the metrics around this query, comes back with the query, are you not adding load to the already slow query as well? Is it just meaningless?
0: Not really. In the benchmarks, we looked at the overhead is maybe 1% or 2%. It's really not bad at all. And that's a very constant factor, right? You're doing a little bit of bookkeeping to see how much time that thread in MySQL is spending on CPU, but you're not adding any anything significant. It's usually just one context switch.
2: So that's the kind of thing that has to happen upstream, though. So are you running like a fork of MySQL or are you trying to... Is this still experimental phase or...? How's that shake out?
0: Yeah, so we're maintaining an internal fork. This is not in production on all the shards yet. There's a lot that you have to do in due diligence before you roll out your own patch with a bunch of, of C. But this is something that we're, we're starting to roll out more heavily. And then we want not just to expose this information to upstream to upstream places so that we can do data analysis on it in the warehouse. And we can do the API throttling based on it. But now we can also build a shudder, like a load shutter inside of MySQL to prioritize traffic. So it chooses the queries that are most valuable rather than just the ones that are the most of to overwhelm the system.
1: What's up, friends? When was the last time you considered how much time your team is spending building and maintaining internal tooling? And I bet if you looked at the way your team spends its time, you're probably building and maintaining those tools way more often than you thought, and you probably shouldn't have to do that. I mean, there is such a thing as Retool. Have you heard about Retool yet? Well, companies like DoorDash, Brax, Plaid, and even Amazon, they use Retool to build internal tools super fast, and the idea is that almost all internal tools look the same. They're made up of tables, dropdowns, buttons, text inputs, search, and all this is very similar. And Retool gives you a point-click, drag-and-drop interface that makes it super simple to build internal UIs like that in hours, not days. So stop wasting your time and use Retool. Check them out at retool.com changelog. Again, retool.com changelog.
2: So Simon, we talked about how you came into Shopify, no college degree, definitely education, but needing to learn a lot on the go. And you were so intentional and disciplined around this. You came up with different methodologies for learning and you built that into a system. in fact, the first time that we came across you, it was on the Super Organizer Substack. There's a really nice article out there called How to Make Yourself into a Learning Machine, which is all about you and the system that you came up with. And uh, out of that comes a lot of stuff, but most notably and most recently, you have this idea of back of the napkin math or quick math for understanding systems from first principles, which you're out there talking about. It's really interesting and allows people to really quickly and simply, perhaps simply we'll talk about that, figure out a thing about a system like how it should be performing or how much it should cost or uh, how much throughput this should have without having to say, I'll get back to you, right? Or spend six hours crunching numbers. So maybe start by telling us about your desire to learn in this intentional way that you were learning and and all the stuff that you're learning. I mean, you're reading books and you're basically making sure you remember what you read is to simplify it. But there's a lot of interesting things in the details and then how napkin math came into the equation.
0: Yeah, sure. So it's funny that we actually opened a bit with competitive programming unintentionally, because that's where this practice comes from. When you're doing competitive programming, a lot of your time is spent trying to implementing a solution, doing a competition, you know, it's going to take you probably about, you know, 30 minutes to an hour, depending on the complexity of it. There's a lot of off by ones. There is not a lot of help from an editor or a linter or anything like that. So you really have to know how well your program is gonna perform beforehand. How fast is it gonna be and how many points is that gonna grant Mm -hmm. you? And fortunately, doing these competitions, it's a very controlled environment. So you know that if you only have to see N once, like an O and N of N algorithm, then you're you're probably gonna perform pretty well. If the input is, you know, 10,000 and you have an n square algorithm, you're starting to get in trouble for doing something in less than a second. So there, the napkin math was really, really easy and it was very encouraged. And, um, a lot, anything you will read about competitive programming is going to talk a lot about the strategizing of how much that's going to create. And I kind of left that behind a little bit when I went into Shopify. There wasn't really a, a lot of where we would need that. You know, there's, there's not a lot of algorithms in, in day-to-day programming for most programmers. But over time, as more and more of my time has been spent reviewing how systems are gonna perform and doing tech reviews and designing systems more so than implementing parts of them, I basically took up this practice again of, you might find yourself in a meeting and you know you you have a conversation with the other people in the meeting and someone says well maybe we could do this and someone else says well that's probably too slow and then someone else said well well why don't we try it and then we'll meet in a week or two and see and see how it's doing and then you know you you go off from the meeting and the person works on that for a week or two you come back into the meeting room and then the person comes back and say ah it, it was too slow and the person advocating for it in the first place says, what, you implemented it wrong? Like, I'll come help you. Give me, give me a week or two, and then we'll go back back to it. Right? And you can see how this story kind of unfolds, and then you spend a month or two kind of going back and forth on this. But I think with a little bit of practice, you can estimate the performance of systems ahead of time. And you can start to develop some expectations about how the system should perform, right? Is it reasonable to continue to have this written in Ruby or Python instead of C++? Is it reasonable to use this database for this kind of operation? Can we build this on top of MySQL or do we fundamentally need a different data structure? I very, very firmly believe that you should be developing your understanding from the bottom up. For example, right now I'm working in on search and I don't know anything about search, but the first thing I do is I go start to learn, to learn how an inverted index works. How would I implement that? How does Lucene implement it? How do you do a top K, like get the, the top K best documents for a query? What does that look like? How does it do that efficiently? How is it laid out on disk? What heuristics does it use? And then build up from there, because then my question is not, oh, does Elasticsearch provide an API for this? I think about, hey, fundamentally, can an inverted index perform this operation? What would it look like? How long would it take? How would it do in in MySQL compared to here? Oh, an inverted index is not just good at doing full-text search. It's also good at just merging arbitrary sets, which then leads you to find other applications. So that's something that I found really valuable is that you can now go into the meeting that I described before and be like, hey, hang on. Let's draw out these scenarios and then do some back of the envelope calculations. So an example might be that someone might say, scanning a gig of memory on every single request? That's way too slow. There's no way we can do that, right? But then what you see is that if you sit down and you write a program in C, you allocate a bunch of memory, and then you go through it and maybe add out the numbers so the optimizer doesn't optimize it out, you see that, whoa, you can actually read a gig of memory in about 100 milliseconds. So maybe that's not so crazy if you can also do a little bit of caching, right? So suddenly these things that weren't even solutions before become solutions to become plausible, right? The, the, my favorite thing about this is that I run this newsletter called the napkin math newsletter. If you Google napkin math newsletter and Simon, you, you should find it. And essentially what this is, is that this is my kind of monthly exercise in napkin math. So I post myself these problems. So a problem that I might post to myself is How many transactions can a MySQL fundamentally do every single second, right? Is it a thousand, is it 10,000? And so I sat down and tried to construct kind of a simple model of how, how does MySQL apply a transaction, right? So I start to kind of, from the bottom up, think about this. So then it's like, okay, you have to parse the SQL query. That's probably pretty fast. Then you have to sort of figure out what's in this insert. There's a bunch of data also pretty fast. So how do we commit this? So it's durable, right? There's this whole asset guarantee that we have to hold up that if the server shuts down, it either needs to be committed or not. So what does it need to do to do that? Well, it needs to take that transaction that insert and put it at the end of a file. And then it needs to tell the the file system, Hey, commit this, send it to the hard drive and don't tell me that it's committed before you're sure that it's committed to the hard drive. Right. Do what you said you're going to do. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that operation is called, uh, is called fsync. So then the hypothesis forms, right? The napkin hypothesis forms that, well, the number of transactions you should be able to do in MySQL every single second must be equal to how many fsyncs you can do per second, right? Unless there's a bottleneck somewhere else.
2: Because that is the biggest number in a single transaction, right? So you whittle it down to like, what does one look like? And then you add up whatever the time is for one. In this case, fsync outweighs every other thing, which is pretty much rounds to zero. And so that's why you say the number of fsyncs is equal to the amount of time because it's just massively larger than any other time that there is. You know you take that apply it to like a a HTTP request and you say well the network time is like massively bigger than any other thing just throwing that out there. So you can you're figuring out what it is for one and in this case it happens to be F sync is pretty much what matters.
0: Exactly. So yeah, you look at the numbers, you're like, how long does it take to send a query to the database? Well, probably like less than like a couple hundred microseconds. How long does it take to parse the query? Well, that's like, you know, a couple hundred bytes. That's like less than five nanoseconds. I'm just throwing out some numbers here, but all of these numbers can be found on github.com slash slash napkin dash math. And then you see that, oh, there's an F-sync operation here. And F-sync is benchmarked at about one millisecond. In the whole scheme of things, that's actually a fairly long time. And that seems to be the bottleneck for MySQL because the, the network and so on is typically not the bottleneck. So yeah, you take a one millisecond and you divide it into a second and you see, okay, that's gotta be a thousand transactions a second, right? And so what I did for this edition of the Napkin Math Newsletter where I investigated this was that I went and I actually tried to do as many transactions per second as I could. And I found that I could do about five to six to 7,000 transactions per second. That's way higher than the 1,000 per right. second that I'd estimated from the estimate. So
2: you screwed it up. So man.
0: now we have what I call the first principle gap, right? Well, We've constructed a simple bottom-up understanding of how the system works, and we have a real result, and there's a gap between them. They don't line up. And they don't, sometimes, you know, it's like 1,200 and 1,000, it's probably fine. It's fine, it's right. rounding errors. But this is a significant enough gap that there's something there.
2: MySQL is probably cheating somewhere.
0: Yeah. My understanding of the system must be wrong. Yeah. And as it turns out, it was. So I started looking into it. I I wrote some BPF probes to try to figure out what MySQL was doing and reading some of the source code and some blog posts. And what it turns out that MySQL does is that it does batching, right? If you have um, five transactions that come in in the same millisecond, it's going to apply them as part of the same F-sync. So instead of doing an F-sync for every single transaction, it's better that it tries to, to group those commits together. And that's literally what it's called, a group commit. Mm. And there's lots of examples of these kinds of discrepancies. An, an example from another context that I really like was when Elon Musk wanted to build SpaceX, he went to, I think he went to the Russians and he's like, how much does a rocket cost? They're like 120 million. And he's like, that's ridiculous. <laughs> and then he multiplies, you know, aluminum cost and titanium cost and so on, um, like probably 10 tons of this and hundred tons of this. And he multiplies it with the spot tr- prices on the uh, London metal exchange and says, okay, well, All the materials for a rocket cost seven million. So that, like that difference, that one hundred and thirteen million. Yeah, what is that between the raw cost? What's in there? That's inefficiencies, right? We should be able to do better, and in fact, he was able to do better. Was he right about that? Yeah, he was right. He was right. Yeah. Gosh, smart.
1: Hmm. Well, that's what happens when we assume, though, right? Like you mentioned, this never do that. This sort of like root cause understanding of a system. Like you, you assumed that you know one mysql write was equal to one f sync. At least that's my understanding of what you're saying here. Mm-hmm. And so you went into this problem with an assumption that was incorrect, and once you learned more, which is good for a developer to learn more about a system, you can then have more understanding of it and now go beyond just simply this limitation and start to understand that gap, as you mentioned, right. this first principle gap. Yeah, And this was an
0: example where my understanding didn't line up. But oftentimes, the napkin result is much better than the real world result, right? So something I was doing in a recent newsletter was that I was trying to figure out how fast we could serve like a, a simple free text uh, query. And Lucene, which is kind of the standard for doing free text searches uh, and inverted indexes, Lucene is about, I think, 20 times slower than my napkin math for this. So I reach out to one of the maintainers and I'm like, can you, can you explain this, right? Is there an op- opportunity here to optimize Lucene or is my understanding off, right? And I've found both scenarios, right, where, well, there's something we can optimize in the system or there's something wrong with my understanding mm-hmm. of it. Um, but typically it's my understanding that's wrong. But sometimes there, there's a very real um, inefficiency, like someone has just written the code incorrectly right. or it's
1: not written in an optimum way. So going back to your original example here, you mentioned the meeting, right? It sounded like you were kind of battling against this inefficiency of time. You'd mentioned roughly a month being wasted or at least exploratory to discover this. Whereas, if you took, I don't know how much time it takes you to do this research for these back of the napkin math scenarios, but in this case, if rather than you spent at least those two engineers' time, you know, writing, investigating, arguing, taking lunches, you know, whatever, you right. know, whatever it took to, to like, come to this understanding of the system, how much, you know, the efficiency or the inefficiency is that time versus the time it takes to investigate and do some sort of napkin math example to, to have a, an estimation, I suppose, yeah. of how it might perform.
0: Well, the napkin math can often be done in a few minutes, right? Usually the bottleneck is not doing the napkin math. The bottleneck is understanding the system, right? Enough that you can model it out in napkin math. So if we're trying to come up with a more concrete example, right? It might be something like, let's say for example, that we have a Redis in production and the production team that runs this Redis instance says, okay, we've hit the max throughput. This Redis is is doing 10,000 requests per second and we need to shard Redis, right? And sharding Redis, that's, that's a big undertaking, right? Now you have to change all the application code to talk, like, to, to be on multiple Redis. If you're doing anything that does something on multiple keys, you have to make sure they're on the same Redis. It's a big undertaking, right? Now these developers have to spend months and months sharding this Redis. Well, the napkin math person, you know, the annoying person in the meeting with the napkin math hat on might say, hang on, 10,000 requests per second? That's, that's nothing, like machines are fast. And they might say, okay, well, if you can read reading about um, 64 bytes of memory takes about five nanoseconds, right? If you divide these things together, like theoretically, you should be able to do hundreds of thousands of requests per second per Redis instance. So what's going on here? Why are they reporting 10,000 requests per second when the theoretical upper bound is hundreds of thousands of requests per second? Again, here's a discrepancy. Is it my understanding of the system that's wrong? Is Redis doing a lot more than just reading memory and serving it over the network? Or, Is there an opportunity here? Is there something that's wrong with the system? So in this case of Redis, something that I've seen before is that Redis will get a lot slower if you have a lot of connections to it. So if you have a language that's not particularly fast and it's spending a lot of time reading to Redis, you might have thousands of servers that are connecting to that Redis causing tens of thousands of connections. Now Redis is not spending all of its time serving all of these queries. It's spending a lot of time just like an epaul call basically figuring out which connection is active now. So then you might find, oh, maybe instead of doing all of the sharding effort, we can put a proxy in front of Redis like Envoy or something else uh, to reduce the number of connections on Redis, and suddenly we don't have to shard it, we just have to put a proxy there. And these developers might've just saved like three or four months of sharding work, right? And all of the risk that's taking something like that on entails, right? Like now you have these keys on, on different servers and you're almost certainly gonna mess that up. So that might be an example where napkin math really helps guide your decisions because it just questions like, is this really the, the maximum throughput?
2: Well, you've done a lot of people a service by putting the numbers out there on that repo that you referenced. You have things like the latency and the throughput of system calls, hashing, context switching, TCP echo servers, all the things where that's where I'd probably get stuck is I got I, I would understand the system to a certain degree from first principles. I do want to ask where you start. But we'll get back to that. Once I have that understanding, I'm like, I don't know how long this thing generally takes and probably these are like a Google or two away but you can always find the one result that like misleads you completely and ruins your napkin math. So it's pretty cool. if People are trying, want to do this. We'll link out to the repo where a lot of these numbers are out there. There's also a lot of question marks like how how long does a mutex... Please contribute. Right, take, so <laughs> there's some there's some places to <laughs> contribute there contribute, but yeah. let's go back to that very first example of like maybe the search example so he's like i'm going to go read about these indexes and how they work well how did you know that search works that way how did you know that that's a place to start because you got to find the bottom to build up from there and sometimes like that can be a big effort as well just knowing like where do i look it's a really good it's question
1: it's also similar to yak shaving sort of it can be I like <laughs> yeah. it. right i mean you can really yak shave on this kind of investigation
2: right instead of using lucene you built your own lucene in the process yeah
0: exactly but yeah yeah, where do you know where to start yeah i think one thing that i definitely just want to point out before we go further is that this napkin math is not you know it's not my idea this is not an original idea at all right people have been doing this since the beginning of time
2: this is how we find out if a business is a good idea right we're like sitting in a diner (laughs) and we're like writing on a map if i sell this many widgets for this price am i gonna make money or not like for sure
0: and in, in kind of the computer science realm, Jeff Dean, who's, you know, the legend engineer at, at Google, who stands between a lot of the engineering that a lot of us built on top of, I think he had a slideshow where he sort of managed, mentioned it as like, oh, by the way, this is something that you might want to do, and then posted some numbers that have been going around. I decided to create my own one because it's fun, like sitting there and disassembling things to make sure that it's as fast as it can get um, and writing the Rust program to do that. But also because I was missing more than just the latency. I wanted the throughput, like how much can you process in, in a million? millisecond, how long does it take to process a gigabyte? So to go back to your question of how do you develop this first principle understanding? I think in a lot of cases, you can ask an expert, right? A lot of places might have a, for example, if you're modeling something like Uh, MySQL, you're going to have, in a lot of cases, at at least at larger companies, someone at some some DBA who can tell you how that B tree is laid out on disk. Um, And that's going to be a really, really enlightening conversation for you because you can't do the napkin math unless you understand the system. Mm -hmm. So for something like an inverted index, um, well, you can read about how an inverted index works. There's a book on Lucene called Lucene in Action. And I essentially just started reading that book. And then you sort of like develop just a stronger and stronger model of how this works. You read kind of the, there's some some documentation for Lucene and and how it's implemented. And then you start seeing, okay, well, like it's, it's sort of implemented like this. And so if you have, you know, you need to find something, a term that is mentioned in a million documents and another term, and you also want to check that against another term that's also in a million documents. Well, then you probably have to read 1 million documents plus 1 million document IDs. Each one of those identifiers is like, you know, let's say 64 bits. So now you have like 2 million 64 bit integers and then you can roughly figure out how long is that gonna take to read and join those two together and doing a search across both of them. And then you you also get into things as like, oh, it's actually possible to read faster than D64 bit integers because you learn randomly that Lucene actually does really good compression. And in a lot of cases can get these down to about eight bits per document ID stored. And this is counterintuitive to a lot of people that reading compressed data in a lot of cases is actually faster than reading uncompressed data because your machine is bottlenecked by the memory bandwidth that you can get. So between you getting pages from memory, you have a lot of CPU cycles where you're not doing anything. So if you can get more in each memory page and then decompress it, uncompress it in the spare cycles until you get the next piece of memory, you can often read faster than otherwise. But of course, this gets into the nuances of like, now we're beyond the napkin math. Now we're no longer concerned about just getting this right within an order of magnitude. Now we're really trying to, to squeeze this out. But yeah, essentially, you just have to start reading the literature, um, which, which is usually a good practice, I mm-hmm. think. But yeah, you can end up in a yak shave, right? This whole yak shave on mm-hmm. um, like reading a paper about how like comparing different compression techniques for storing integers in something like an inverted index. Well, that's probably a yak shave that I didn't need to take, right. but it
2: turned out to be really interesting. Yeah, there's a nice side effect of knowledge, right? Like you're getting the knowledge as a side effect because there's, a, there's two ways of going about it that I see. You're tasked with this thing. Well, let's use, let's evaluate what search solution we're going to do, whether we write our own, use Lucene, whatever it is. Well, the first thing is like, which I do oftentimes, like, well, how long would it take for me just to try it? Like a feasibility kind of a spike. Like, well, I know that in your case with the meeting, you have a month lag time because you got lunches and stuff. Apparently, they're going to lunch a lot, Adam. But, you know, maybe I can do that. In well, two- he mentioned
1: two weeks each, and I figured they would do lunches <laughs> no, they're going to have What are these
2: developers doing? Walks to, like,
1: vacations, you know, long
2: weekends, you know? time at the cottage. Yeah, exactly. So I don't know what they're doing all that time. But, you know, sometimes you That's can right. you can spike out a thing in a couple hours and get your answer. But you don't have the nice, you have the, you have the answer of, is this feasible or is this a good idea? But you don't necessarily have the side effect of, I still don't know how it works. I just know that it worked out in the math, right? But the napkin math way of going about it, if you don't understand the system first principles, you can't really just grab a napkin and get your numbers. You got to go get the knowledge. And maybe that takes two hours and then you got you to wash. But you ended up with, now I understand how search works
0: you know, if you can't do the napkin math, it's probably also too early to go and actually implement the system. Um, like I call this uh, programming through the wall when you just like keep keep writing code and it's like, oh, I'm almost there. And then you just write code a little bit harder, right? When in a lot of cases, you just want to step back and, and think about the system and learn a little bit more about it. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I, I don't mean to say here that like all tech problems can be solved by just sitting and um, with, with like, you know, a, a piece of paper and a pen and doing all of this, right? In a lot of cases, you just need more information from actually like writing some code right. and and you can often get stuck in a rod of just analysis paralysis but i think that napkin math plays a bigger role than than and could play a bigger
2: role than it does now for for a lot of projects. Right. It's a tool for your toolbox.
1: What it seems like is you're encouraging this exploration though so that you don't go and waste the 2 weeks to go and implement an example and then two more on the argument or what you know in that scenario in particular like you're encouraging one other option to take rather than a Redis rewrite that might take months and months and months on an assumption when you could have just put Envoy in front of it and, you know, proxied and solved the problem, you know, like to encourage that exploration, I think is what's kind of key here. This is like knowing more about the system is always gonna be a good thing. It may be a yak shave in some cases, or it may not be, but it's going to deepen your understanding and you're encouraging exploration.
0: Totally. and And I mean, that's also how I use the newsletter, right? Is that there are these problems that are ruminating in my mind that I'm very interested in. Like re- recently I was interested in how do you synchronize data really efficiently between a mobile client and a server? How do you do that like really, really well? And so I just decided that I was gonna make a napkin math problem about it, right? And then just started thinking about how could this work and then, and then diving out and adding complexity as I found out that the simpler solutions wouldn't work. And that exercise is, I think is really, really valuable, but it certainly it certainly takes time.
2: So the way the newsletter works is you send out the problem and then uh, you follow up with the math solution or do you send it all out at once? Like, is it interactive? Do I get a chance to do my own math and then we reconvene with your answers or how does that work?
0: Yeah, that's what I did for the... I've been writing a newsletter for about a year now and for the first maybe nine or so, I did exactly that. I sent out like, hey, here's the problem, here's the scenario, you know, your coworkers saying the red is the slow, is it really slow, what's the theoretical max throughput, blah, 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 blah. But what I found was that um, a lot of people just didn't didn't do it, I like just there's want a couple of signals that just said yeah. that people just didn't do it. So people read it like a blog post, but where the context was a month delayed. So I've switched format now to just make it more of an article, but I really hope that people are doing this behind the scenes. And something that I also didn't mention, but something where napkin math is incredibly useful is finding financial estimates, right? Like how much money is it going to take to store all of this data, right? How much money is it going to take to run this streaming process job all the time? How much extra money is it going to take to run, you know, another 50 Redis? And I have those numbers on the, in the napkin math, like a GitHub repository as well, which just kind of rounded to, to numbers that, that are easy to, to do some
1: math with. What's up friends? Are you looking for a way to instantly troubleshoot your applications and services running in production on Kubernetes? Well, Pixie gives you a magical API to get instant debug data, and the best part is this doesn't involve code change, and there are no manual UIs, and this all lives inside Kubernetes. Pixie is an API which lives inside your platform. It harvests all the data you need, and it exposes a bunch of interfaces that you can paint to get the data that you need, and it's essentially like a decentralized Splunk. Is a programmable edge intelligence platform and it captures metrics traces logs and events all this without any code changes and the team behind pixie is working hard to bring it to market for broad use by the end of 2020 but guess what because you listen to this show i'm here to tell you how you can get your hands on the beta today by going to pixielabs.ai links are in the show notes so check them out to click through to the beta and their slot community once again pixielabs.ai and look forward to a pixie day coming soon
2: so say that somebody is sold on the idea of adding this tool to their belt of tools they can reach for when it's time to solve a problem or do a feasibility research. And they're like, let's just do some quick napkin math. But I've never done this before in the context of systems. Maybe you've done it with your budget or some expenses or a business idea, but haven't done it well. And I don't really trust my ability to come up with an answer that I'm going to have much confidence in. You have some techniques that you apply and some tips for getting started. You wanna walk us through those?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So these are in the GitHub repo as well. Um, so the first one is to not overcomplicate it. We, we had this example before of a Redis instance, right? And what are the things that, that actually matter, right? Let's actually, let's take a database query instead, mm-hmm. right? When you're committing a database query to disk, the latency that's going to matter is committing the query to disk parsing the SQL statement is not really gonna matter. Like maybe you add on a couple hundred nanoseconds, but in the grand scheme of things, it's just not gonna matter. So just don't put those things in there and just focus on the biggest, slowest bottlenecks in the system that you're trying to model. So that will be the first thing. And kind of my rule of thumb is that if you have more than six assumptions, like more than six additions in your napkin math, you probably need to simplify things a little bit. That's usually a bad sign. Mm. The other thing too is um, when I do napkin math, I usually try to keep the units. So, this is this is thing like, for example, the kilobytes or terabytes and things like that, like just just keeping those there or, you know, terabytes per second or requests per second. Um, Keeping the units is really, really handy because then you make sure that you don't get a wrong number. So, it's just kind of a checksumming. And Wolfram Alpha is often. Often I don't actually do this on a napkin. I just do it in Wolfram Alpha because um, Wolfram Alpha is very, very good at handling units. It's very good at handling conversions between different units. So kilobytes, the terabytes, the other way around. And so usually I just type in things with the units into Wolfram Alpha and then it gives me the right yeah. result.
2: And if the units look weird, then I know that I did something wrong. Plus it helps you conceptualize it better. Like if you're thinking in megabytes and you type in megabytes, it just conceptually is right there versus having to do the conversion yourself exactly. and then having to convert it back when you think about it. Exactly.
0: And then the the, the third one is to calculate with the exponents. So often if you end up having something like, you know, 3.924 times 10 to the like eighth power or something, like just lose everything after the decimal. (laughs) Like it just, it just doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. With napkin math, you're just trying to get in within an order of magnitude of the, actual performance of the system and as long as you're within that order of magnitude you've probably done it roughly right that's one that i also also really make sure and uh, and it, this also means that it's just much easier to do if you are doing it in a meeting room on a whiteboard mm-hmm. um, that you just have to multiply or add the the um, coefficients on the exponents together instead of trying to do like multiplication of fractions and things like that that's just not fun you're going to embarrass yourself in front of your coworkers. <laughs>
1: You'll be umming yeah, a lot. Yeah. Um, got that uh, one wrong. Uh, you got get out your phone and pull up Wolfram Alpha. <laughs> Never mind. You'll be, yeah, you'll be uh, stuttering.
0: Because that's the beauty, like the reason why napkin math, like when you're, when you're by yourself, you have a calculator available, right? And you can write that out and right. put that in the GitHub repo. Doesn't mean that you shouldn't try to still keep the units and not overcomplicate things because otherwise your, your coworkers are just gonna approve the PR because it looks complicated, right? And also just keep yourself to high school math, right? You don't need anything fancy. And then I think that the last one that I have on the list here is arguably the most important, which is to call what, to do what's called Fermi decomposition of the problem. And this sounds really fancy, but, but it, it's really not. It's just decomposition um, with a fancy name. And the reason why it's called Fermi decomposition is because there's this physics uh, professor um, called Fermi, Enrico Fermi, I think is his full name. Um, he was Italian. He worked on the Manhattan Project, and he was a very revered a physicist among his co workers because he had this knack for estimating things. So, for example, when they did the, the famous first detonation of an atom bomb in, in Nevada, he dropped a couple of shreds of paper from the air. And based on how far they moved after the blast, he estimated within a few, like to pretty good precision, how strong that atom bomb was, which was very remarkable wow. at the time because actually doing the calculations for that is like probably beyond any of our math skills and took them weeks to do, but he had an estimate immediately. And you have to remember that this was at a time where people were literally afraid that they were going to blow open the ozone layer because they just did not know how powerful this was going to be. So the fact that they had that right there and then, and he did an estimate that was so close, was remarkable at the time. He's very famous for this, and, and probably the most famous example of a Fermi uh, decomposition is to answer these kind of, I think he, I'm, I'm imagining that he sort of went around the Manhattan Project and then asked his, over lunch, asked his coworkers these ridiculous questions, like, how many piano tuners are there in Chicago, is the really famous one. And it's like, how are you going to answer right. that, right? How are you going to answer, like, who cares? And how are you going to answer that?
2: you break it down that's how you do it
0: yeah exactly so you break (laughs) it down so you go like okay probably we should know roughly how many people there are in chicago right and again this is napkin math we just have to be within an order of magnitude then it will all work out so there's maybe like i don't know nine ten million kind of in the metropolitan area of chicago um so that's like an estimate that i think that um most people could could probably get there somewhere between five and Uh ten million and then you think, well, so, okay, how many people are there per household? So uh, maybe like two people per household on average in that area. And then you start to think, how many households might have a piano? Do you guys have a piano?
1: No. Mm-mm. No. Do you have a piano? No, no piano here. Well, I have a, a a keyboard. Well, I guess it's a piano. It's not like a grand piano. It's more of like a, a keyboard piano. Does it need a tuner? No. Nope. no nope. digital. It's not a piano then. So we might say maybe like one in 20 households
0: have oh, a piano, wow. right? I
2: was gonna go one in a hundred. You were gonna go yeah. one in 100,
0: okay, that's, that's high. Or low. So we could go one in, 1 in 20, one in 100, one in 50, yeah. you know? I think there's a lot of homes with pianos where they just can't get rid of them because getting rid of them is right. the worst. And then we might estimate how often are these things tuned, right? You know, I, I did, the estimate that I used when I uh, was doing a presentation on this was about once a year, that seemed really high, like that one in 20 people would tune this once a year, um, but maybe once every few years. And then you might think, okay, so then we have to think about, like, how much can a piano tuner do? So tuning a piano, probably including driving within the Chicago metropolitan area, would maybe take about two hours. And then we, we assume that a piano tuner works eight hours a day, uh, maybe about 50 weeks a year, or however, you know, Americans work in a lot of weeks a year. Mm-hmm. This is in America, so... 50 weeks a year Fair. and then we can start to kind of compose these numbers and then we say okay we, we you know we look at the how many pianos there are and so on and we say there's probably about 200,000 piano tunings per year in Chicago how many can each piano tuner do so maybe about a thousand if you use those numbers from before and then we get somewhere around 200 piano tuners in Chicago right so that's the rough mm. estimate and this this technique is called Fermi decomposition
1: how many actual tuners are there And again, it's not meant to be on the money. It's meant to be within an order of magnitude because one thing I'd throw in there might be a curveball is you assume that that the supply is equal to demand. Yes. Right, because there may be more people capable of tuning a piano even though they may not do it professionally and therefore the supply may actually be disproportionate to the demand yeah
0: now you're going from napkin to to somewhere else right right
2: more granular
1: theoretical yeah we might
0: have done this napkin math because we wanted to figure out is there any opportunity here right this could right. be someone trying right. to do product market fit or whatever right and they're looking in the phone book and they're seeing like one piano tuner they call him up and they try to book with him to figure out how busy he is and it's like oh um this piano tuner like can only be booked three months out and they call someone else and she says, oh, yeah, I'm booked all year. And then this person is so like, oh, there's a big opportunity here because there's a mismatch between what's in the phone book and what I estimated. Um,
1: but, mm-hmm. yeah, this is definitely and then you might do do a little bit more analysis after that. Which we're getting to a, a good point, which is what's the point? Right. What question are you asking? You know, what's the point of the napkin math? What's the whole point? Right. It's not to get to an accurate number. In particular, it's to determine a good next step, right? Exactly. Right. It's to answer a different question, right? Like the,
2: the question you're asking is not the one you care about. Because if you cared about that question, you would ask it in a much more granular way. Like you would say, well, what about right. churches and, and uh, community centers? They're, more, they're likely to have pianos. We should add those in, right? But we don't care about the actual piano tuners. We care about some other question we're trying to answer, which is like, is there an opportunity in Chicago to open up a piano tuning business?
0: the question that you're trying to answer with napkin math is, is there something there, right? Exactly. And then, you know, I think about decisions in kind of a decision tree, right? And you have these branches and your job as a decision maker is to figure out how far down these different branches you need to go and to chop the ones off that don't look fruitful as fast as you can, right? Mm -hmm. So an an example of using this, right, might be something like you receive your bill from your cloud provider and the bill is $100,000, right? And you're like, that seems pretty yeah. high, right? right. And you're like deep into red, and you're trying to figure out is this reasonable or not, right? right? Um, and so you might say, okay, you look at it and you say, I'm doing about 10,000 requests per second. I know that I can. And you're doing this in a whiteboard, right? You're like in crisis mode because you're deep into red, and you're doing this with your coworkers. Okay, friends, we're doing 10,000 RPS. Each one is 100 milliseconds, right? So if this is single threaded. We divide those two numbers, and we see that we need about a 1,000 CPUs to serve all of this traffic, if all of that is CPU time. Okay, so if we know that a CPU, one CPU costs $10 a month, then we multiply 10 by 1,000, and we know that to serve all of this traffic should be about $10,000 a month, right? So then, now we have an estimate here, right? So our bill was, was 100,000, our like main application cost roughly 10,000, what's going on here? That just, that, that, you know, we have this gap again, right? And so you might add in like database costs and so on, but they just, they're just not adding up. And then you start going into it and you find out that one of your coworkers left, you know, 200 machines running that they were training some machine learning model on and they forgot to turn it off. And that happened and then you have an RCA and you figure out that you need to have something that monitors how many machines are running or whatever, right? But these are the kinds of things where, again, the question you're trying to answer is, is there something here, right? Mm -hmm. Or if these numbers added up to 70 or 80,000, it's like, okay, this um, this must just be what it costs. We need to optimize it.
2: Yeah, that's really powerful stuff. I also think when you're doing the feasibility, again, if we go back to the opportunity to start a business or have a business that actually, you know, the dog hunts, you know, you're comparing your potential revenue versus your potential costs. And so the cost calculations, if you're going to be cloud-based, a lot of times is exactly what you're doing. You're estimating how much this is going to require us what are we going to be paying out a month to Amazon or to Microsoft or to Google? And is that going to actually scale alongside the revenue that we come in? So you just have your back, you can have your napkin math on the revenue side and your napkin math on the expenses side and start to make some decisions on, is this completely upside down? Is it tight? Is it obviously an opportunity? And then once you start having those answers, then you can say, well, it's obviously an opportunity. Let's get more specific, right? Let's fill in those gaps and take out the napkin And put in the calculator, you know, the more specific uh, spreadsheets and drill in. But if it's completely backwards, like, let's not waste our time with the details. It's not going to work.
1: How many times have you done this, Simon? I don't know. I've lost count. Hundreds? Thousands? Give us an order. Just back of the map. Give me a napkin map on <laughs> your <Yeah. under> estimation. <laughs> okay.
0: <laughs> I've been alive for this many years. You know, I don't write that much code anymore, right? But then I would be like, how many PRs do I do a week? How many of them require napkin math, right? But I, I really find that it's just useful to when I'm reviewing code. I also think about this, right? It's not that necessarily that I'm sitting down drawing something, right? But I'm just like, okay this person is getting this much throughput on this, or they're doing these kinds of calls on this critical path. Like, is this this gonna work or not, right? We talked about that MySQL extension earlier, right? Um, How many, okay, it's doing this many syscalls, and we know every syscall based on the napkin math, we know a syscall might take about, let's see here, 500 to 1000 nanoseconds, depending on it. We're doing this many, we know how much overhead we can roughly introduce per query. And we say, okay, we need to reduce the amount of system calls we have here because we have a very, very tight budget, right? So we might look at, look at things like that. And it just, over time, you also start to build an intuition, right? I'm sure that both of you have seen, have encountered people, right? Who have mastery over some domain Mm -hmm. and they just look at what you're doing and they say like, yeah, this is not going to work. And you mean like, what do you
2: mean? It's not going to work immediately. Yeah. They just know immediately like, nope, doesn't make sense.
0: There's that famous story, right? Of a, of a firefighter who took his team into a building and they were trying to, you know, get people out and so on, um, and I think they emptied the building. And then they were standing, kind of in the in the lobby of this building. And suddenly, the guy who was in charge of this operation said, "Everyone out!" And people were like, "What do you mean, everyone out?" But you, you know, you just you follow order in these kinds of circumstances. And they all ran out. And about a minute or two after they were out of the building, the floor collapsed. So how did he know that, right? Mm. Well, he built some kind of mastery, right? That some and. and Mastery is built by just deliberate practice over time, and at some point, you might not even need to re- really reference these numbers anymore because you start to have a
1: pretty good feeling for what's fast and what's, right. and what's not fast. Well, the point of me asking that question was to, to really get to how many times has this saved your bacon, so to speak. You know, the, the reason why our audience might care deeply about this or pick up this practice is because, you know, one, you're introducing this idea to us, even though you're not the inventor of the idea, but the reason why you do it has been because it's paid itself in dividends in your career.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say because I don't have the timeline uh, in front of me or the parallel reality of where I didn't have this, right? I think that the biggest place where it, I end up applying it again and again, and again, I just, I, it's hard to give, give a number. I would say I do this at least once a week, apply it to something at work, right? Where it has some impact. What that impact is, it's not always true, but the impact almost always is, hey, the simple solution is gonna work. Like it's fast enough. Because the engineers, if they have an idea for how to make something fast, they usually will, even if it takes longer. And they will justify why that's the best thing to do. Um, but when you realize that reading, you know, a megabyte of memory, even on every single request, probably not your bottleneck, right? That only takes 100 microseconds. It's not really that long if your requests are taking 100 milliseconds, right? So, yeah, it's hard to, to answer the question directly.
1: Yeah. You mentioned this newsletter you have. Where, where can people subscribe to that so they can follow along as you do more of these napkin problems and you share them?
0: Yeah, so you can go to, it's linked from the GitHub repo, re, repository, github.com slash slash napkin dash math. You can go to my website, which is syrupsin.com. Slash Napkin, and you can subscribe there. If you Google just you know Simon Napkin Math, I I think it will probably come up as as well. It's kind of a niche market. Yeah, and yeah, then you should every month you should receive some kind of deep dive. Um, and my coworkers uh, joke with me because they know exactly what project I'm working on based on the <laughs> Napkin Math newsletter. So I'm very much doing this on things that I'm actually working on on real problems. Nice. So. I'm, I've, you know, I've at least done this 12 times next month because these are real problems. And a lot of these I send to coworkers because they ask a question and then I,
2: I go deep on it in, in one of these newsletters. Um, so, so that's very, it's very real. Um, yeah. Well, you got one new subscriber, I'm subscribing. Right when we hang up this call. One last question for you. Do you have a specific brand of napkin that you suggest?
0: I actually do not own any napkins. Okay.
2: At all. So I, I've never done this at on a all. napkin. It's it's terrible. You're charlatan.
0: <laughs> I do all of this on i on an iPad.
2: I thought maybe you were just working for big yeah. napkin and you're just out there shilling napkins, but
0: <laughs> Yeah. Uh yeah, I should have some napkins in, in the background here. You, you know, should. set this up a little bit better. You should come
2: up with a like a little, you know, Simon branded napkin. You could sell those on your website, <sighs> That's you know. True. Like, come on. merchandise. That's true. You know, thing. if
0: I'd done that, maybe I'd make some money after this aired. Yeah. <laughs> mm. Cause unfortunately, all of this is free. You know, I'm not earning a dime on this, but this is okay. Huge
2: missed opportunity.
0: Yeah. Do you know do you know anyone in Big Napkin? <laughs>
2: we do now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> They're gonna That's reach right. out to this. Be like, we can sell you some napkins.
0: Yeah, we can we can help you out here. Like Dad and Strike up a product placement deal. Perfect. Can we sponsor the show in retrospect? And a really hack um it should be sort of the size of the airline napkins, yes. like those really, really low quality That's right. ones. Because
2: yeah. then you run out of room real fast, you have to grab another one. See now you're using Exactly. You're using exactly. two. You need constraints.
0: I bet you also the airlines probably, you know,
1: they're desperate to make money right, right now. They'll sell you some of their napkins.
2: Yeah, this I saw so. hunts. I think we should just do the math and see if it's gonna be a business. True. I like awesome.
1: it. Awesome. Simon, thanks for sharing this yeah. uh cool stuff, this man. wisdom and this this exploration. This This desire for curiosity, I think, is pretty interesting. And that's what's interesting to me is that you encourage this exploration to see if there's actually something there worth uh, doing more of or not, if the original assumption was correct. But uh, links will be in the show notes, listeners. You know that. So the uh, repo and the newsletter, all that stuff, check your notes. You will see it there. Simon, thank you so much. Thanks for having me on the show. That's it for this episode of the Change Law. Thank you for tuning in. If you haven't heard yet, we have launched Change Law. It is our membership program that lets you get closer to the metal, remove the ads, make them disappear, as we say, and enjoy supporting us. It's the best way to directly support this show and our other podcasts here on changelaw.com. And if you've never been to changelaw.com, you should go there now. Again, join Change Law to directly support our work. And make the ads disappear. Check it out at changelog.com slash plus plus. Of course, huge thanks to our partners who get it fastly, Linode, and Rollbar. Also, thanks to Breakmaster Cylinder for making all of our beats. And thank you to you for listening. We appreciate you. That's it for this week. We'll see you next week.